0: brother <laughs> let me invite your attention to psalms 85 psalms 85 and i want to continue the theme of prayer that we started sunday but from a different text and we'll cover old testament texts in january about prayer and tonight i want to address revival prayer now let me tell you why god tells us to pray so frequently and so often in his word do you know why god tells us to pray because prayer works Prayer, ladies and gentlemen, can shape the future. By your prayers, you can actually reach into the future and change tomorrow from what it would be if you didn't pray. Otherwise, God wouldn't tell you to ask. You see, if you could not reach into the future by prayer and reshape tomorrow into something different than what it would be if you didn't pray, then all prayer would be would be praise and thanksgiving and confession. There would be no asking God for anything. The reason you ask, which is the emphasis of Jesus' teaching on prayer, not praise, not thanksgiving, not even confession, though each of those appear, the emphasis of Jesus' instruction on prayer is to ask. If you could not reach into the future by prayer and shape the future by prayer, he would have never told you to ask him for anything. In other words, prayer is meaningful. God's command to you and God's promises to you about asking are sincere. He's not teasing you. He's not playing with your emotions. He's not dangling false hope in front of you. You can shape tomorrow. By prayer. And don't let the mysteries of that cause you to stumble. Trust God that you can shape tomorrow by prayer. In fact, you can shape the next few minutes by prayer. And that's why God tells us to ask Him in His name for the things that we need, the things that are in His will, that are good for His children, His church, His mission, and His creation. And Psalms 85 is an example of that. Here David is looking at the landscape of Israel and perhaps his own life and noticing some things have declined. And so he asks God for revival, to put new supernatural life back into these things. And he does that in three ways in Psalms 85. In verse 4, he says, restore us. In verse 6, he says, <coughs> "Excuse me, revive us. And in verse 7, he says, show us your mercy, Lord, which has got to be the most frequently requested request in the entire Bible. Lord, have mercy. Come through, help the destitute, help the helpless, help the poor. And David, as king of Israel, classifies himself as the helpless, the poor, the needy, the destitute. He wasn't financially, but in every other conceivable way, he was. The most frequently requested request in the entire Bible, Lord, have mercy. So he's asking God to come through. So what he wants to see coming out of his prayers in the future, the immediate future, is revival, restoration, and mercy. He wants his whole future defined by revival, restoration, and And mercy, and he calls out to God for these things because he can reach into the future by prayer and implement the full program of God's revival, restoration, and mercy by prayer. And so can you, because you've got the name of Jesus Christ, you have the fully revealed will of God in his word and the help of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. Now that's why January 26th, we're asking our church family to commit itself to praying an hour, taking and selecting an hour during the day to pray for one another. And then we're asking you on the 26th to also bring two or three, what we're calling him possible requests. Take the word impossible and put the letter H in front of it. Him possible, things that are only possible if God intervenes. And uh, we'll be explaining more about that later. But on that date, we want to ask you to bring some two or three him possible requests, because you can reach into the future, reshape the future, and implement the full program of God's revival, restoration and mercy by prayer. So there's hope for each of these, according to this text, and there are three reasons why. We pray in hope for these things because of the past a favorable past. And what we find uh, that in is in verses one through three. There's the past restoration of captives and forgiveness and the removal of God's anger in verses one through three. Look at verse one. Lord, you've been favorable to your land. You brought back the captivity of Jacob. That actually happened. God throughout the history of Israel relocated captive Israelites from a land and geographically transported them back to the land of Israel where they belonged. He actually intervened and pulled that off for his people. And if God can do that, defeating hostile enemies and hostile nations, such as the Philistines and the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Assyrians, and uh, the Medes and the Persians, then God can certainly send revival in our day. We look back at the past. And we know God can do that. Well, then there's also forgiveness, verse 2. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You've covered all their sin. So there's a history here of great renewal with God. And then verse 3, there's the removal of his anger. Take away all your wrath. Turn away the fierceness of your anger. In other words, what we do is that we build our hope for the present and the future on the basis of the past that God's people have had with him because, listen carefully, God never changes. God is always the same. He may not work necessarily in our life in precisely the same way that he has others, but he will always work generally in the same way. He will work according to his mercy, work according to his promise, work according to his word, and we can always count on God to come through because he came through for Israel, releasing their captives. He came through with forgiveness, and he came through with eliminating his mercy from the equation of his relationship with them. Now, God has done that in the United States as well. He's done some marvelous things through Four Great Awakenings, and they've reshaped the political nature of our existence together. Back in the early 18th century, the 1700s, Baptists were a persecuted minority. But then by the end of the 1700s, the end of the 18th century, Baptists had the political power to get an audience with James Madison and promise him their vote for him to go to the Constitutional Convention as a representative from Virginia, if they would take, if he would take an amendment from the Virginia Constitution that George Mason had penned and introduce it to the Constitutional Convention. And ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. That is an amendment that is a Baptist amendment. James Madison agreed. He got their vote. He introduced it, and today we live with the fruit and the flower of the First Amendment. Well, the question I have for you is, how in the world did we go from being a persecuted minority early in the 1700s to having that kind and wielding that kind of political power with James Madison? 1734, a powerful awakening came across the colonies and Baptists as a result poured out their hearts before God. God came through. God sent an awakening. Multitudes were converted so that not just Baptists but Baptists uh, grew remarkably along with the other groups. In fact, they grew more than any of the other uh, theological groups and denominations. A thousand percent up north and fifteen hundred percent in the southern colonies so they became a powerful powerful force. Ladies and gentlemen, they didn't put top politics first in hopes that it would help ministry. They put ministry first and it had great fruition on the political structure of the nation. That's what God has done in the past. That kind of thing can reshape politics. And do you think today we might need a little help with our political structure in the United States? Judicial results. During these great awakenings, judges would lead defendants to Christ. Some of them would have no more cases over which to preside, and they were given white gloves. Law enforcement in many cities, Atlantic City and some other cities throughout the uh, United States, lost their jobs because there were no more crimes in the city, no more criminals to chase and arrest and to book through their systems. And so they formed quartets and sang in revival meetings in churches. There's commercial results. Sometimes revival and awakening can actually backfire on the economy. It did in 1904, the awakening of 1904, which we called the Welsh or the global awakening. And uh, it did so um, uh, because uh, there there were a large number of bankruptcies. People got saved and they quit going to the saloons and the taverns. And they gave up on that. Those fellows had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, There's so many other things that have happened through the years commercially, but let me move on. The social results in the global awakening of 1904, alcohol use decreased by half. And there was an anti-gambling movement that started and it cleansed Galveston and Houston, Texas, where they used to have duels on the streets. Over such issues. There were spiritual results. Atlantic City, New Jersey, in the early 20th century, was a city with a population of 50,000. Ministers then, after the awakening, could only count 50 that were unconverted and did not know Jesus Christ. J.J. Cheek, pastor of First Baptist Paducah baptized a thousand, uh, Paducah, Kentucky, baptized a thousand people in one month and died from overwork. Have you ever heard of that happening to a preacher? It did to J.J. Cheek. 100,000 were converted in Wales. J. Edwin Orr says that 10% of the nation was converted to Christ. Out of this was birthed Biola University because there was a greater demand for the training of missionaries and, uh, and ministers. And out of this Great Awakening, Southwestern Seminary was born as well because of the great demand out west. From that, the evangelism section of the Home Mission Board, now North American Mission Board, was birth because there was a greater need for evangelists. There was such a marvelous harvest. They weren't trying to stir one up. They were trying to keep up with the one that was taking place. And so they had to put together an entire denominational structure of evangelists to help bring about a harvest. And that's the division that Johnny Hunt left First Baptist Woodstock for and now directs at the North American mission board. Ladies and gentlemen, we've had a favorable past and God can do it again. We base our prayers on a favorable past, but that's not all. Also on a prescient present. The present happens to be an indicator of what God can do in the future. Matthew Henry said, when God intends to show his people great mercy, he sets his people to praying. Now, that statement's been revised through the years, and uh, some say today, when God gets ready to do something, he sets his people to praying to give himself the glory so that no one ever thinks that humans have ever accomplished these things. And that's much of what we find here in verses 4 through 7. There is a present need for restoration. Verse 4, "'Restore us, O God, of our salvation. Cause your anger towards us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever?' Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? In other words, the people were so downcast and downhearted over God's Uh, anger and displeasure with them they wanted to return to him and begin to rejoice in him again so there was a present need ladies and gentlemen i believe that more and more christians need to stop enduring their christianity and start enjoying their christianity because of the great joy that's in jesus christ but then there is a present opportunity verse seven show us or at the end of verse six That your people may rejoice in you, show us your mercy, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, David Bryant says that presently there are a number of things taking place that should encourage us to pray for revival, to reach into the future and ask God to do a powerful and awesome work. There are a number of indicators. Now, one is prayer, like Matthew Henry said. There are more prayer movements taking place around the world today than at any other time in Christian history that we're aware of. And again, when prayers increase, that indicates God is about to do something. God has laid it on the heart of others to pray and to seek Him. It must mean that He intends on showing us great mercy. But there's a second sign and that is God loves his son and still wants him glorified. Now, there may come a point in time in each of our lives where we feel like we are repulsive and disgusting before God, where there is nothing appealing about us before God at all. Frankly, that's not a bad posture to stay in. But we may come to him and say, dear God, there is nothing in me to move your hand. There is nothing in me That is so attractive that you would intervene just because I am coming to you to do so. When we are in that condition, that's true, but do not lose heart. While there may be nothing in you in me to move the hand of God, there is still plenty in Jesus and God will move his hand among his people because he is still in love with Jesus Christ. Jesus is still the darling of heaven. He is still high and lifted up and to be magnified, and God the Father loves him and wants his name glorified. So when there's nothing on the earth to appeal to him, when there's nothing within the church to attract him, when there's nothing in you and me to move him, there is still hope because there's still everything in Jesus Christ. There's another sign. God loves his church and is the great healer and God of restoration. God's love for his church will never fail. God has taken the church and placed it in Jesus Christ. So when he looks at the church, he sees Jesus Christ. And the love and the affection and the boiling, um, burgeoning uh, heart that he has for Jesus Christ is shared, beloved, with the church. And he loves the church like he loves Christ and is very willing to heal and to restore. There is a fourth thing. More are concerned about revival today than ever before. And it's easy to communicate that concern and stir a movement among his people. Number five, God's plan is revival and he does not change. In fact, God anticipates the need for revival. He did it in the Old Testament and so he provided the altar. And then he grew that into the tabernacle. And then he provided the temple and the law and the prophets. And we have all of those things recorded in Scripture. And we've got the church. We've got the Holy Spirit with us. We've got great advantages over Old Testament believers to keep prompting us and bringing us back to God in revival. And then the sixth factor that is a sign that revival can be on the way is this. The world is dark, and that's precisely when God sends it. God doesn't send revival in good times. It's not needed. God does intervene whenever it is dark because that is when revival's needed and he's a God of love. He loves us and he will respond to our cries. Now, I want to prove this to you. The church started, ladies and gentlemen, with 120 in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. It exploded in growth that day and continued on and it has continued on every century since then, so that today there are two billion who name the name of Christ. Do you realize that from its inception to today, the church is 83 million times larger than when it started? God has pulled that off. Do you know what it could be if we get before God and we begin to pray and plead with him with all of our heart to send revival? So the past gives us great hope. The present gives us great hope, but there's the future as well. Verses 8 through 13 talk about a glorious message and a glorious meeting. Verses 8 and 9, the glorious message. I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people and to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who hear him, that glory may dwell in our land. What a marvelous message To those who will hear what he says, will not turn back to folly, and who fear him or who are awestruck by him. That's the marvelous message. And here is the glorious meeting. Mercy and truth have met together. They've embraced. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Oftentimes these things are uh, in tension with each other. Most of the time, people can be counted on to fall in imbalance to one way or the other. But here, they are in harmony, whether they're mercy and truth, righteousness and peace. Truth shall spring out of the earth, and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before Him, and shall make His footsteps our pathway. And so whenever we embrace the totality of the will and character of God, Mercy and truth, righteousness and peace. Whenever we fulfill the conditions, hear what God the Lord says, don't return to folly, hold him in awe, be awestruck by him. When we do that, then, beloved, let me tell you, verses 11 through 13 are our future. So let me read your future. Let me take a moment and prophesy your future. Let me predict your future. Not me, but actually the text. Hold on. If you'll meet the conditions God has laid out, look at verses 11 through 13. This is what's going to take place. Truth shall spring out of the earth. Is there any need for that in our day? Righteousness shall look down from heaven. The Lord will give what is good. What a contradistinction to today. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and shall make his footsteps our pathway. I just read your future. If you and I will embrace God's word, hold him in awe, and not return to folly. That is the future. Now, you've had distributed to you tonight a little account by David Thomas, who visited the Hebrides Islands and asked about the great Hebrides revival that took place there from about 49 to 52 in the post-World War II era. He found 11 people living who experienced that. They were in their 80s, and they gave him an account of what they experienced. And to a person, they encouraged prayer, but not just saying prayers, going through the motions and having no heart. They talked about travailing prayer. David Thomas goes through some biblical verses that highlight travailing prayer, where we travail in prayer. If you can imagine a woman going through natural childbirth and the travail she goes through, if you can apply that to prayer, you can imagine what travailing prayer is. And I want to encourage you that as we think about prayer this month, to embrace the notion of travailing prayer. Isaiah said, when Zion travailed, she brought forth children. Sometimes that's what's waiting for lost people to get saved. Somebody needs to travail before God. Sometimes that's what we're waiting for, for God to intervene. We need to travail in prayer. Paul said in Galatians 4.19, I labor until Christ is formed in you. And Here's how I want to ask you to pray and think about praying not merely heartless things, not merely casual prayers, not merely communion prayers or even fellowship prayers, as worthy as some of those are, but instead travailing in prayer. Imagine, imagine you have a child standing before the judge, waiting sentencing, and witness after witness has come and testified in the court about how unworthy your child is. How much pain and suffering your child has caused with his or her crime. And the death penalty is a possibility and it's within the purview of the judge. And everyone who's come has argued for the death penalty for your child. And then it's your turn. You stand before this judge. You stand before the court. How do you Plead with the judge. I pray that you'll have a little mercy and bless us today. Amen. Is that how you plead? How do you plead for a child when everyone else is lined up against them? How do you plead? Oh, God, come through. Apply that then to prayer. Come before God in prayer because the death penalty is a possibility with every lost soul in family, in marriage, in neighborhood, in community, in northeast Georgia, everywhere on the mission field, everywhere throughout the United States. Cry out to God to come through and to intervene with mercy. That's how we plead with mercy. Him, because the death penalty, is indeed a possibility. Travail in prayer, and there is hope because of the past, the present, and the future. And Heavenly Father, how we bless you for the opportunity to turn to you. How we thank you for the power of the name of Jesus. How we thank you that your love has never waxed or never waned. How you have never withdrawn it. Thank you that even now, you are hearing us. And dear God, you've laid it on our hearts to pray, and you're indicating to us that you are about to do something. You're about to come through with great mercy. You are about to hear cries and respond according to our voice. Thank you that you'll do it all in your will, and you'll not violate your character one smidgen to answer our prayers. And so your answers will be perfect, they'll be desirable, they'll be right, and oftentimes they will be very, very surprising. Because we never imagined you could do the things that you've done. And so, Father, I want to pray that you put it on our hearts to pray and to seek you in a way that is appropriate for your promises in your word. As you keep praying, is there something you need to bring to God? Is there some area of your life, some burden on your heart, that needs to be touched with your mercy, with God's mercy? Do you need God to shape your future? or someone's future around his mercy, revival, and restoration. Would you take a moment to pray about that? Would you take a moment to give it to him? He's hearing you. He's laid it on your heart to pray about. He loves the ones you're praying about. Would you plead with God to do something neat with them? Oh, Lord God, would you continue to shape our prayers in this way? Make January 26th, God, the biggest prayer day we've had in the history of our church.